As far as satire goes, The Onion has been leading the way since Wi-Fi became widespread. But how do you create satire about President Trump and his administration? I'm Edwina Throsby, Head of Talks and Ideas at the Sydney Opera House, and today on the podcast we're joined by the team from The Onion. Marnie Shaw is the managing editor, Katie Iser looks after their video, and Dan McGraw is a senior writer on their website. They're talking both real and fake news in this particularly funny session, hosted by the Chasers' Craig Rickassel. Now, if I'm being perfectly honest, uh, no one at The Onion had actually heard of Australia prior to this trip. <laughs> Eventually, one of our listening posts in the uh, Pacific Ocean picked up uh, some sort of mass on the radar, which we assumed was the Pacific Garbage Patch uh, migrating <laughs> with the current. Uh, it turns out that people do live here. Um, and in our uh, week that we've been here, we decided to make up for some lost time and uh, start covering this volcanic rock of ash that you call home. For instance, we wrote, Australian Open cancelled as tennis balls fall out of the bottom of Earth into the sky. <laughs> We've also noted your dwindling Hemsworth reserves. We know this is a great <laughs> issue of importance in your country. And we're not only... Um, we don't care just about money. We care about social responsibility. Um, and we make worldwide efforts to show that, for example. Um, we uh, offer employment opportunities for low-income families across the entire globe. Um, we believe in equality <laughs> and uh, equal training for, for women. And, uh, of course, we care about the kids as well. Uh, children are future, and uh, we believe that, and that's why we are so, uh, do inner-city youth programs so much like we do. We're very good. Yeah. And just as we uh, brought our journalistic excellence to Australia during our trip, we've also extended our social responsibility uh, to your country. Uh, we've, employed a, uh, we've implemented a number of programs, including promoting the Commonwealth's long, slow crawl towards global relevancy. <laughs> we've also returned Australia to its former glory as a thriving penal colony. We've rid your nation's coasts of the mass coral infestations. We personally, yeah. I personally have uh, cleared out hundreds of uh, reef uh, yeah, yeah. You, outcroppings. Yeah, you've been working very hard to rid the, the coral yeah. we, we got here early and made sure to get rid of the last bit of it. It's so. bleached. It should yeah. be gone within the month. Yeah. Yeah. No need to thank us. This is all pro bono work. Yeah. And we've also assisted in the overthrow of ruling monarchs. We're still working on it. And finally, deforestation. Perhaps the program I am proudest of. Yes. Now, the reason that we are all here today, or the reason that we are, and you know, we know that you have nothing better to do. The reason we are here on stage today is to reveal something very important that has happened in The Onion's reportage. An anonymous leaker from inside the White House has provided us with a treasure trove of documents from the Trump administration. Um, these take many forms, and all of them are equally shocking. Yeah. We see here uh, President Donald Trump's daily schedule. And this is, this is the genuine article. This is from the White House. And as you can see, he starts um, every morning at 4.58 a.m. In this case, he screams himself awake. Until around 8 a.m. when he uh, consumes a standing rib roast for one. Yeah. 12.30, beef tenderloin for one. Being the president is a big job. We all know this. Uh, and, and so it, we've, we've noticed from these documents that we, we've seen a lot of uh, methods to 
make the news digestible for President Trump. And mm -hmm. uh, this, this children's placemat uh, is, is a, a way for him to get the news in very snackable fashion. Uh, as you can see, he does struggle with the word search function. Yeah, uh, but it's crucial in uh, teaching him the threats yeah. to national security. And you can see it took him a few times to get out of Syria, but he eventually figured it out. He did yeah. it. Yeah. And he does this at breakfast, which makes breakfast the most important meal for national security. Yes, absolutely. Now, what we see here is a series of memos from Donald Trump to Boeing uh, in order to implement changes to Air Force One. Uh, many of those changes involve uh, altering the plane so that various aspects of it are made of marble. Um, Trump's own idea. And we've acquired a number of documents on which we can see Trump's personal doodles. He's a very creative man. Yeah, absolutely. And. Finally, we've uncovered many children's letters to, pres to President Trump. You know how children write letters to the president. And this is just one of many lovely notes he's received. Yeah, it's, it's uh, very heartwarming to know that uh, children can reach out to the world leader like us. Yeah. Now, this is an ongoing project, and uh, new documents are coming to light all the time. So we will keep on this, and we will let you know what we find. Yeah. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, The Onion. Who I will now properly introduce. To my right here is Marnie Shaw, the managing editor of The Onion, Katie Yeiser, the video director, and Dan McGraw, senior writer from The Onion. <clears throat> Welcome to Australia. It's interesting you said, I, I liked in the documents that apparently Trump wakes up by screaming himself awake, which I think is a fairly similar approach that most of us have when we remember Trump is the president. I, I noticed that last night he put out another great tweet uh, about the tragedy in Texas and he, he made a spelling mistake and they had to, you know, delete the tweet. Do you miss the president being away from him? Do you, what's it like being an American travelling the world now with Trump as the president? Well, it turns out we can't escape him. Uh, yeah. <laughs> In just the week we've been here, I've, I've learned that uh, people in Australia are very attuned to the political or the American political scene, and um, it's both refreshing and horrifying because uh, we realize that we are ruining not just our country, but uh, the rest of the world. Yeah, I think it's, it's our fear of death in World War that makes us interested. But, but. <laughs> As, as satirists, though, right, as, as satirists, as people who are sitting there and at The Onion, as America's finest news source, of course, what was your view when, you know, when Trump came in? Were you guys happy or sad about it? Like, were you thinking this is a, a great thing for The Onion or a terrible thing for The Onion? Or, or just, I don't know, what were you thinking? Uh, it was, well, once we stopped drinking and, uh, <laughs> and, and came to... Uh, I, we get that a lot of, isn't this great? Isn't this going to be so much fun for you guys? And no. <laughs> it's, it's awful as a person, and it's also just very hard because he is uh, insane and, and crazy. Um, so it, it makes our job uh, very hard, yeah. Yeah, it was hard not to ignore the fact that, like, you know, we, we, 
knew that our jobs were going to be much more difficult trying to satirize someone who is um, seemingly beyond hyperbole. Um, but it was also tough acknowledging that while also remembering that it's not even close to the worst thing that happened that night. You know, we, yeah. we were feeling, I was feeling sorry for myself and then was reminded like, oh wait, there are far, far <laughs> yeah. graver consequences. So you're like, this is terrible for satire. Oh, yeah. I guess it's bad for healthcare in the world. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. But it is interesting, isn't it? Because I think, yeah, there's that, that presumption that if you have a really funny president, that that's good for comedy or satire. But in actual fact, satire is often the... It's exactly it's taking the serious and making it absurd. And and with Trump, he's already absurd. It's kind of he's it is a difficult challenge for for, for satire. I mean, the the headline there about Black Heart President. I mean, it's a, that's a brilliant. You know, it's amazing how many tweets and things you've seen about it. But a really great headline still cuts through. But it, but it, that is the difficult thing, isn't it? That for, for you as satirists, he's already in a kind of bizarre space. He's already being funny to a lot of people. So how do you add on top of that? I think um, our solution has been um, to approach him differently than we would a traditional politician. Uh, with traditional politicians, you have, um, you see them talking out of both sides of their mouth a little bit, you see them uh, saying what they really mean beneath what they're saying out loud, and um, you can really uncover it and throw light on it as a satirist, but with, with Trump, uh, he's saying precisely what he means 100% of the time to our horror, so we've had to find different angles into it. And one of those is to talk about his um, administration and the different characters in that, because that's just a whole uh, cabinet of um, clownery, and, and that is also worth targeting. As well as his supporters, they've been very fruitful. Yeah. <laughs> I know I said before that, you know, if you're doing comedy or satire, you don't necessarily want the political leader you're satirizing to already be so funny on their own, because then you can't add this, that comedy on top. But that, that said, I know this is contradicting myself, were you really sad when Anthony Scaramucci, the mooch, only lasted for 10 days? Like, were you like, no, but we've only just started with you? Like, <laughs> Yeah, we never got an opportunity to figure out what we wanted to do with him. And it could have been a nightmare, but it could have also been very fun. We're never going to know, though. You're never going to know. No. So, so he, he actually got out there before you even got to take him on, really. And similarly with, um, are you sad to see Steve Bannon go, who, of course, <laughs> has been, I mean, again, it's a, he's a gift, isn't he? He's an extraordinary gift. I mean, how far do you have to go before you get to a, a sane person? You go, okay, now we can, it's all right. <laughs> It's a tough thing for you. I mean, do you, do, you, do you kind of, do you hate losing these kind of people? These kind of... I'm already so jaded that there's no way that some of these characters don't find their way back to us in the public sphere. I think that we haven't seen the last of Bannon. We haven't seen the last of Scaramucci. We might have seen the last of Spicer, but... Uh... Yeah, I think the frustrating thing about uh, these folks is that at least, you know, in 2012, um, in in prior elections, the people we disagreed with, we disagreed with on policy issues, and they were debates worth having. And I think with a lot of these characters, we're going back to conversations we thought we solved like 60 years ago. And so that's very frustrating because it feels like you have to, it's like when you're talking to somebody and you have to start the story all over again. You're like, wait a second, why were you not listening? We covered this. I want to talk about what we were supposed to be talking yeah. about right we now. We decided white nationalism was a bad thing. Exactly. <laughs> and so it's very, very exhausting and frustrating having to like 
rehash all these debates. And I think that, in, in addition to all of their other flaws, is like one of the most uh, irritating things about them. It must be good, though, given you did Our Dumb Century and those kind of books where you have looked back at history, I guess you can, you can reuse all the headlines from Nazi Germany now, which is great. <laughs> I mean, cuts down on rewriting there. Yeah. Um, now, obviously, this, this is built about being about fake news, and fake news is an interesting thing. I, uh, the Onion has, for many years, published fake news, essentially. Uh, it's very different to what we now call fake news. What would you say is the difference between the Onion's form of fake news and what is currently characterised as fake news? Unfortunately, a definition of fake news that everyone's been listening to is the one coming out of Donald Trump's mouth. And he means it in a wholly different way than we've ever meant it. Uh, when Donald Trump says something is fake news, uh, we all pretty much agree that that just means it's news that he does not find favorable to himself. Um, and then there's also a genuine, there was a genuine issue during the election cycle of people um, on both sides of the aisle using mistruths for their own gain. And, and packaging it up like news, and that's probably you know the most sinister form of it. But um, our form of fake news is ha has always had uh, purer intention, and it's just you know it's it's satire that does not intend to trick people into thinking that it's real. It's intended to be a, a piece of creative writing that uh, sheds light on greater truth via mistruth. So um, our intentions have always been better. Uh, if I do say so myself. I think that's right. When I was trying to distinguish, I think it's more, it's like fake news is pretending to be true, but is actually false, whereas satire is pretending to be false, but actually has a hint of truth underlying it. Is that, and kind of that for me is the distinction. But it is funny how it's not necessarily always clear. Like I was looking at some of the, you know, the top five election stories that went around that were actually, you know, BuzzFeed tracked what stories got the most traction in social media. A lot of those were, the, the biggest ones were actually fake news stories that were actually made up. And li reading them, they essentially read as really shit Onion headlines. Like, Onion <laughs> headlines written by people that don't have a good sense of humour. It's like, the top one was, Pope Francis shocks world, endorses Donald Trump for president, releases statement. That's kind of just like a shit <laughs> headline. Yeah. Yeah. And WikiLeaks confirms Hillary sold weapons to ISIS. You know, yeah. They, they, they just read as bad Onion headlines, essentially. Maybe it's someone's, like, rejected Onion packet that they <laughs> put online. But yeah, if, if we um, did that version of fake news that didn't require a lot of effort or creativity, we would put out a million headlines a day. Um, our version uh, takes more time because it's harder, and whenever we get a headline in, in the room that reads like it could be possibly like real or might trick people, we don't do it. The last thing we want to do is trick people because we have um, theoretically so much fun <laughs> writing these headlines and bringing them to life. We want people to also enjoy them and not be confused by That's what's That's interesting. Happening. So you're in the room, if you get a headline that you think people will just confuse as true, you won't, you won't run that. That's no, yeah. And, yeah, and if they do, then it's just their fault. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I do feel like that, you know, if you believe a headline and it has the Onion logo next to it, you really have stuffed up in a big way yeah. to, to do that. <laughs> it's interesting, there's a, there's, there's a satirical group in, um, in Venezuela, which, like, right, is a kind of Venezuelan version of the Onion, and they write satirical articles, but then... At the end of it, they like put all these footnotes linking to independent journalism that proves the kind of facts underlying it. It's this weird kind of thing of going, you know, we're doing satire, but 
this is based on truth. This is this kind of thing. And that, I mean, obviously, Venezuela is, a, is, is slightly different to America. It's, you know, got a shocking oligarchical kind of president who's a bit of a moron, but a very different situation. <laughs> but you've never, you've never thought of kind of linking that kind of stuff together? I think our readership has uh, trained themselves to do that, uh, to do that work over you know, the 30 years we've been around. Um, we've never felt the need to highlight the real sources that these things come from because we just assume that we're commenting on things that are in the national consciousness. Um, and we don't want to give other outlets credit for what we do. <laughs> do you find that that means you can't attack the kind of more obscure stuff? Like you have to kind of wait for the big stories. You, you know, essentially, is that, is, does that kind of constrain you on what you can go on? I don't know if it constrains us. I think I find it more enjoyable to, um, and I think it's more successful when we satirize or talk about um, things in broad strokes, like themes or things that are in the zeitgeist, for instance, white nationalism or um, populism or whatever, you know, form. Ism. Yeah, whatever ism <laughs> is, is of the day, because um, those allow us to hit it from multiple angles, whereas just writing a joke about one crazy thing that somebody said that day, um, there's just less room to run. So I, th I prefer stuff that's, you know, larger. Larger, yeah. Mm -hmm. By the way, those uh, Venezuelan satirists will be at the Chaser Lecture later in November if you want to come along to that. <laughs> Smiley, slightly smaller venue, I presume, than this. <laughs> <laughs> Venezuelan satire is not quite as big as The Onion, I don't think. <laughs> but, <clears throat> look, it, it's interesting, though, because, we, you know, you obviously, from what you're talking about, in the room you're having this conversation, you're not wanting to trick the, your audience. Do you spend a lot of time talking about what's the message of this? Like, what's the truth that we're trying to convey through this article? I think we spend a lot of time doing that. Yeah, I think, well, the... Yes, I think when we are not sure if the readers will know what message we're sending, that's always a red flag. So sometimes we'll see a headline on, on our list that we're discussing and somebody might say, okay, what are we actually saying with this? And then that discussion will take place. Um, but ideally, our headline should be strong enough that the... Uh, message we're sending is, is apparent just from that, that one joke alone. But you find that, that people will often look into headlines and, you know, read a lot more into it than you may have thought and, you know, that kind of thing? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, sometimes people will misread things and be offended by them. Uh, when that happens, we're pretty sure that they were looking to get offended by something anyway. Um, other times it works out great and we have uh, instances where we um, intended one thing, and it was taken as that plus a whole lot more. Um, we, we ran a story once, uh, and it was, the headline was, Deformed Freak Born Without Penis, and it was a photo of a woman. Uh, there behind you, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, this was a fun one to talk about and to write, but um, we weren't really anticipating it getting um, so popular with readers who connected it to a feminist message and um, saw that it was, it was satirizing people who degrade women for being somehow lesser than men. And so that really resonated with people and became a hit. That's interesting. So, so in the room, it was kind of seen as a, a funny headline and a funny joke. It wasn't kind of being pushed as something with a satirical point. And I think it's, it's an interesting thing to, to distinguish that with The Onion and with lots of things like that, you know, there's, there's probably a, a scale, isn't there, between some things are just there because they're funny as hell. Some things are there satirical. And in this case, the audience took it as satirical and you were like, no, it was just a joke. I mean, it's a nice bonus, but... Yeah. <laughs> How 
how do you decide that kind of balance between um, just funny and a truth or a point or a satire? Like, is there, a, you know, do you have a magic, like, you've got to get six of each before we go home, or what, how does it work? No, it's, it's much more left up to the individual writer to um, balance their own list or just write about what's on their mind that day in, in headline form. Um, I think the only time we really um, focus on the balance is when it comes to, like, big breaking news stories that we're writing about that day, um, specifically like tragedies like shootings or terrorist attacks, we in that case are focused on making sure our main biggest headline is ideally satirical or something with, with weight uh, rather than just like the funniest thing that we, that we wrote. Um, but for the most part, it's, it's pretty flexible. Yeah, it's, um, and, and yeah, when it's not some breaking big issue, uh, story or tragedy, it just comes down to, well, what are the headlines that day that are good? And the secondary kind of question or thought is, oh, that's more satirical, that's goofy. It's just which headline is, is the best that day or that week, and that's what we go with. Um, and yeah, beyond that, it's pretty much just that, yeah. Do you have, I'm interested, how many people in your, like, how many people do you have kind of around the table doing this, like in a writer's room? Like 12? 12, yeah. About 12, like 12 people, writers. okay. Do you have real distinctions between, like they're kind of the, the hardcore political freaks that are trying to get everything's being satirical and the rest of you are going, that's not funny. And the others that just don't give a shit about projects <laughs> and are just trying to do, you know, funny stuff the whole time. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, they, okay, yeah. we, we had the very same distinction in our team. I'm glad to see that. Okay. Yeah. And if they don't care about politics, then God help them because that's a hell of a lot of what we've yeah. been doing. So. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's in, uh, this, is, uh, this was a great uh, headline I thought this week, a great satirical headline this week. Authorities... <laughs> there was... And I will, I will read, I will definitely read some more of it. It was a great article, actually. Given the extent of the potential destruction, we urge anyone in the path of the storm to make their way to higher median income levels immediately, <laughs> said Louisiana Governor, adding that residents should resist any urge to wait out in the dangerous weather below the poverty line and proceed directly to a higher tax bracket. I think that's a great, <laughs> great satirical article. Um, it, it, look... It's interesting. I mean, yours obviously was another great one. I thought wealthy team <laughs> nearly experiences. <laughs> it's a good thing about as well about just you know satire as well is not necessarily topical. It's about that kind of social satire, and yeah. you know, are you really looking for those ones that kind of summarise America as you see it? I mean, do, do you when you're in a room, do you feel like are you kind of there going, this is a place of great injustice we need to kind of talk about, or you're just trying to make each other laugh? I'd say that we might think that privately, you know, what our, what our own individual role is or collectively or what our role is, but it's usually not an actual conversation that takes place in the room. Um, I think in the room we are really just trying to make each other laugh and ideally, you know, laugh in a clever, uh, smart, you know, way with, with some messages, but I, I don't think there's ever like an active, you know, discussion about our uh, role in, in saving the world. Yeah, and, and I think like um, when people talk about satire, I think a lot of times they, that's just can be swapped out with political, and I don't think that's necessarily the case. Like, satire, like that's satirical, a goofy um, headline that has nothing to do with politics, but still makes a point about the way we live or the way we see things or the way we interact with each other, even on like the smallest level, is satirical. So I think that's always like a good thing to remember, that um, a good satirical headline isn't necessarily a groundbreaking, punch-you-in-the-teeth political comment that's going to shake the world. Yeah. I guess the great balance is when you can get both something that's funny and probably makes a point. I think this one probably does it here. 
Pope vows to get church pedophilia <laughs> down to acceptable levels. It's very funny, but it's also just, it's one of those things you just, the more you look at it, you go, that is just so scarily spot on. It's just yeah. a great summary. Um, and I, that's easy to do, or that's kind of what Marnie was talking about, because the Pope is kind of like a, your standard politician, well, he'll say something, but we'll point out, well, he's actually saying this. And with Donald Trump, he's just actually saying what he means. Yeah. So, yeah. It is a very different approach. He mm -hmm. has he's screwed up satire in many ways. It, <laughs> I, I often think that if, if you'd written Donald Trump as a character and, and like pitched it as a movie, you know, 10 years ago, it would have been sent back to you as this is unrealistic. You know, you know yeah. just, in a satirical, even if you said we're doing a satire of an American president, if you'd written Donald Trump, nobody would have accepted that as being real. And, no. and in fact, we've done so much coverage in the past uh, about Donald Trump prior to any presidential ambition. And in 2013, um, we published an op-ed, uh, when you're feeling low, just remember that I'll be dead in about 15 or 20 years. <laughs> um, and... And to see that now nestled on our website under the tagline, President of the United States of America, is very bone-chilling. Yeah. yeah, he would, if, if you wrote him as a character in, in this scenario, I think the note you would get back is, oh, this is way too cartoonish and heavy-handed to say, oh, a rich guy who's a complete idiot, he can be president in America in our system. <laughs> that would be like such a like bald, uh, ham-fisted Yeah, uh, but like a very rookie script. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. Is, is it right that, that the headline you were talking about there, Money, did... did did, they, did Trump threaten to sue The Onion over that? Yes. His attorney wrote us a very kind letter <laughs> asking us to cease and desist immediately, which we did not follow. But now we have it in our inbox like a little gem. Uh, it's, he, he immediately responded um, and insisted that Donald Trump did not, in fact, write that. Uh, <laughs> and that was fun for them to clarify. <laughs> And we did nothing uh. to cease or desist. What was, what was the last sentence? Oh, um, this, this does not belong on any newspaper, even your onion. Even your onion. It almost makes it seem like he's thin-skinned in some way. I'm not sure <laughs> that we'll see any repeat of that characteristic through time. But no, I mean, it is, it is fat. Do you, do you, just while we're talking about getting do you get a lot of... Um, Legal letters, do you get a lot of people threatening to sue? Uh, do, you, do you generally take them down? Or are you kind of protected because you feel like an idiot to send a letter? Unless you're Donald Trump, you feel like an idiot to send a letter to The Onion asking to yeah. take them down. I mean, George W. Bush also um, threatened, I don't know if threatened to sue, but he asked us to not, or his people, to not use a presidential seal in videos or images, um, right. which we didn't, we just kept on doing whatever we wanted to do, but... <laughs> Uh, yeah, you would know. You probably get all those letters. It's interesting to see what different people's boundaries are in that way. Um, uh, one of the articles that generated the most hate mail of all time, for example, was uh, an, another um, op-ed column, which was uh, about the Olsen twins, and it was, Mary Kate is dragging Ashley down. <laughs> and that generated such an outcry. Um, <laughs> Meanwhile, the things that we expect to have a serious backlash don't always. Uh, we've made plenty of jokes about um, September 11th that generate zero feedback at all. And, and you're kind of waiting for that one to hit, and what when it doesn't... What outrage? What were people complaining about on the, the also? I'm a little bit lost. What was the complaint, generally? The complaint was, they're both wonderful. 
Right, um, good. Yeah. Good. Uh, I'm just kidding. It's insane. But so you don't get many, you don't get a lot of uh, threatening legal letters or that kind of stuff. Or I mean, this is probably because you have a proper uh, constitutional right to freedom of speech in America, right? Probably different in Australia, <laughs> where we don't have that protection. Is that so right? Yeah. No, we don't have the same protections as you, so I don't think it would be as, as much as that. But so that's not a problem, generally speaking. You, you, know, you don't have lawyers crawling over the, the articles you write before you publish them? Certainly not. Um, we, we have a, a, a real editorial freedom. And um, much more so than people uh, slapping us with legal action, it's more like confused celebrities tweeting at us, uh, not sure what we're doing using their face and name and, uh, in their articles. But yeah, generally we, um, we have a great freedom to just make the commentaries we want to make. It's interesting just having heard you say that you, know, you don't really have any legal constraints because um, you know, The Onion is a, is a commercial organisation, it has advertisers, has all these things. You know, it's, there's a lot of outrage around nowadays and one of the things I'm always uh, impressed by The Onion is, is I guess how far you do push the boundaries. I've got a few examples here of some great ones. God answers <laughs> prayers of paralysed little boy. No, says God. Loved one recalls local man's cowardly battle with cancer. <laughs> School bully not so tough since being molested. <laughs> See, that's, you hear that sound? That's actually a fascinating sound. That's that, that sound then, that laugh then, that's the kind of laugh that I want to talk about in a way. There's this laugh that comes, you know, these are not necessarily satirical in any way. There's a laugh that comes with really black humour. And it's, black humour is a difficult thing, is it like, it's kind of, it's hard to explain. If you're ever asked to justify it or, you know, to say why it's good or whatever, it's, you know, it's hard to, you, you want, we had to go before a court and explain why it's funny, but that kind of guilty laugh that you gave, <laughs> you gave is incredibly, we're laughing, but I'm so guilty about it. <laughs> it it's fascinating, though. I mean, do you, do you guys, do you love this kind of stuff? Uh, do you... Do you ever pull back from this, or is there kind of no restrictions? No, I, I love that kind of stuff. Like, that's my favorite laugh, because it's revealing that you're not as, as good as you say you are. Like, you're <laughs> full of shit. You think that's funny, too. And so I, I love those headlines, and I don't think we ever... We'll write wrong-headed headlines if we know that the audience will realize how wrong-headed it is, if that makes sense. Um, if, if we think that the readership will get what we're doing, then we're okay with that. But we will discuss whether it's wrong-headed in an unintentional way or in a way that may be misinterpreted, in which case we may kill a joke. Um, but as a general rule, we don't have like, oh, we can't write jokes about, obviously, uh, yeah, being molested. <laughs> Paralyzed children, right. cancer, <laughs> molestation. I mean, they're all fairly probably up there in the outrage category, that kind of thing. Yeah. But it's interesting, like, it, there is a real place for this dark human. I feel like, it, have, do you find it's changed at all with kind of social media and with the growth? Of, I mean, I don't know, I feel like there's a real outrage culture now. There's a lot of people who love being outraged by stuff. <clears throat> Do you get caught up in a lot of that? Or is The Onion, because it was kind of established well beforehand, is it kind of so established as a kind of brand that you get away with it? Yeah, I think it's established and we get away with it. I mean, there is still going to be outrage on Twitter or Facebook, and that's unavoidable. And it's just, if it's different now, it's just in the back of your head, like, oh, this is going to piss some people off. But 
you, that's like the most you think about it, I think. Yeah, I mean, like my hometown newspaper, if you go to the comment section of the website, people are being outraged over tiny little stories. Like it's, it's everywhere. And so if you were to go online to Facebook or Twitter and read our articles, I'm sure every single one of them would have outraged comments, which is why like, I'd say most of us just don't even read no. the comments or whatever. Well, Imani, it's your job to actually read. You get the complaints sent to you, don't you? So <laughs> I, I receive them. It's not necessarily my job to actually read them. Yeah. <laughs> Straight to the trash bin. <laughs> do you... Oh, well, obviously, you know, Mary Kat, do you kind of... Are you, are you, do you kind of count them and go, oh, that was a good one. That, that got, you know... What's a, what's a large amount of complaints for The Onion? It can vary wildly platform to platform. Um, not everybody is so outraged that they email us directly, but um, they'll maybe start a campaign on Twitter or something or Facebook. But um, I know that one article we wrote was um, Nitro expected to win Westminster dog fight. And it was about a pit bull like, winning a dog fight against all <laughs> these other uh, toy breeds. And that... <laughs> and, um, it's a great Photoshop, look it up. Uh, but I looked, at, I looked down at my email, and uh, there were um, 1,500 emails just about that article uh, in, in the day that it ran. That's impressive. Dog, dog owners are nuts. They are, yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that that's a good illustration of how everyone's line for what crosses that line is going to be different. And so it's not always useful to think about things in terms of crossing a line. Um, it's more about whether you can stand behind the commentary you make and defend it in the face of that scrutiny. Mm. Yeah. And have you ever kind of printed things that you thought afterwards, oh, probably, you know, have you ever kind of thought, oh, we probably got that a bit wrong or that went too far or you regretted it after you published it? I think some headlines, um, I've never, I don't have one personally that I'm like, oh, I shouldn't have written that or we shouldn't have done that. But I think just like with any, thing in comedy or in life, like some age better than others do. And so you'll look back at something from the mid-90s or even like, you know, a few years ago, and like, oh, that doesn't really hold up well. Either it's like that's observed or little narrow thinking or whatever, but none that you would say we have to take it down. Yeah. Do you ever, have you ever, do you ever kind of take stuff down later because context changes or anything? No. I mean, as we say in the room, once it goes up, you can't take it down. So, I mean... That, if anything, deters us from publishing stuff we'd regret because um, it's the internet and, you know, it never, it never goes away. So what are the kind of articles that don't get through the room then? What are the ones that kind of lead to big arguments? And the, you know, is it, is it outrage ones or is it just based on whether or not it's got the right message? Or, you know, what are you arguing about in the room? I think a big argument is, uh, first of all, clarity and whether or not the joke is evident. Um, beyond that, it's uh, about whether the you know, 12 or 15 people in the room uh, want that to be our statement that we release on a particular topic. Um, beyond that... We, we had that one we were talking about uh, before. Uh, we had an article from, like, f or a headline from four years ago um, that was a little boy dresses up as soldier, and it was a picture of like an 18-year-old in a military uniform. And there was considerable debate among the staff because um, half the people really, really liked it. They thought it was pointing out that uh, we are using people who are more or less children to fight in certain wars and do they have the capacity to make that decision. And then uh, the other half of the room was very much um, against it. We, they felt it was condescending. They felt that it was um, stripping these people of their agency. And ultimately, we like just 
tabled it and let it sit around to, to marinate, and then I think uh, ultimately just you know drifted away in the sand of time. But yeah, there's no good winning an argument like that because yeah. if you you know, won it and, and we published the article, you know that half this staff doesn't believe in it. And, and we trust each other too much to run stories that we're not all sort of fully behind. So. Yeah, you don't want to be um, answering to something you don't back. And w we've been very aware of the whole thing when things get misinterpreted. We did a Make a Realistic Wish Foundation sketch one time, which <coughs> in hindsight, we probably pushed a little bit far and was very much misinterpreted. And it was, uh, yeah, you don't want to... You really don't want to be in that situation. It's going to be nasty, kind of. The, um, like, by the way, I just, uh, I know, I think I could only see three people leave while these three uh, headlines are up here, so we just better just choke a couple That's more. Good. Funny toy band because of three stupid dead kids. <laughs> this is, and this one I love as well. This is a great headline. <laughs> it's just, it just takes that little bit to really go through it. So disabled kids, and there's nothing, see, it's good, there's, there's nothing of... <clears throat> it's interesting, actually, I think you mentioned earlier um, that you've written stuff about September 11 and that kind of stuff, and I, I think one of the examples might be this one here, uh, and this is <clears throat> well after. <laughs> Did this get much blowback? This got precisely one email in response and the email said great article it was both towers though <laughs> and, and that was one where we were so nervous or at least really expected to get like a lot of blowback for that one uh, and ultimately we got it is surprising because I, I mean I get the sense that September 11 is obviously a, you know, a fairly touchy issue in America and I mean it's it's an interesting <clears throat> part of the Onion's history because, of course, they uh, moved to New York just before September 11. They were about to put out their first edition from New York. They'd been, is it Wyoming they were initially? Where's, no, uh, where's Wisconsin. Wisconsin, yes. One of the W ones. <laughs> uh, <coughs> Doesn't matter. <laughs> and they were about to put out an, uh, an edition pretty much on the 12th of September, didn't put it out, and then after September 11 happened, put out about two weeks later, put out an episode which has become quite famous. And in a sense, it's famous because it was received well. Like this is the front cover at the time. You know, it's a, there's some great headlines there. US vows to defeat uh, whoever it is we're at war with. Hijackers surprised to find themselves in hell. We expected eternal paradise for this, says suicide bombers. But, you know, it's great. It was interesting. That's, I think that must have been an incredibly difficult, like amazingly difficult juggling act to put that out. Um, is that, how do, the, how, does the, how do you guys look back on that particular edition? I, that, for me personally, I was 16 when that happened, so I wasn't on the Onion staff. Or if I was, that would have been incredible. But um, <laughs> that to me is a, 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 one of the examples of how just about every day at work, I'm like, I can't fuck this up. <laughs> this place is so good and has such an incredible history of being so funny and so much funnier than everyone else. Like, it really rattles you. I, like, the one I always point to is not knowing what else to do, woman makes an American flag cake. Um, that's just such a poignant satirical comment, but is actually really, really funny. 
And I think in post-tragedy, people try to be funny and they're just not. And that's actually like makes you like belly laugh. Um, so looking back at that is uh, just a horrifying reminder that I have a lot to live up to. <laughs> And I think that this is a really good example of um, the, the mix that uh, Dan was talking about, like the, the, the news satire and then like the slightly more everyday average person satire, um, like the flag cake versus the, the George Bush one right in the center there. Um, and like hitting both at once really creates this balance that makes it feel like we've really inspected this issue from all sides and uh, it, as complicated and horrific as it was. Um, and this issue really did put The Onion on the map. Uh, it was already well-known, but this really kind of, I think, skyrocketed it. It's amazing, too, that they just moved to New York at the time. It's interesting as well that, that they took that time, because there was meant to be an episode on the 12th, come out the 12th, and then they took that time. And can I just point out, it's another example of where The Onion is a hell of a lot better than The Chaser, because we were <clears throat> putting out an episode of a, of a newspaper similar at the exact, you know, the night they went into the towers, and we took the opposite approach, which was pretty much to put out something the next day with just a shit ton of off-colour jokes on it. And what was interesting is that I think that we responded to seeing what was on the screens, but without any of the context of it. We didn't understand any of the broader context. And so um, it led to a lot of outrage. And I think I remember thinking of, I think she was on the second page. It was an incredibly good satirical article on the second page of The Onion. And I kind of thought that was what you just, you gained from having that time there. Whereas we were like, well, World Trade Center Siki says, you know, World Trade Center janitor says best Siki ever, and you know, <laughs> Center Point jumps two places in world's tallest buildings. You know, it was all this kind of very jokey stuff, but with very, and it just what it lacked, what it lacked, and it's not that we wouldn't have necessarily printed the jokes otherwise, but what it lacked was it lacked any kind of context or understanding of what was going on, and that was what I think by holding back and doing that, uh, the Onion achieved. So. Smart asses. Uh, anyway, <laughs> um, I'm interested though. I mean, obviously, you you always do it perfectly and in no way make any mistakes. But uh, you do have advertisers. What do you ever get blowback from them, or do you kind of are you ever told to not go near things, or what's what's your relationship like with advertisers? I feel like you have to be a fairly brave brand to be advertising with the Onion in the first place. That's the ideal uh, brand, is one that is brave enough to advertise with us uh, without trying to question what we do. Um, but generally, I think that uh, advertisers understand that we have a cohesive vision for the things that we, that we do. And so working with advertisers isn't the uh, logistical nightmare that it could be if we were more of a scattershot publication, um, publishing things that range from wrong-headed to to being in the right. And since we have a pretty consistent um, perspective behind our work, that's something that we, can, that we can go to advertisers with and they won't be so scared. Do you ever, do you ever kind of, uh, you know, like move ads or kind of, do you ever ask advertisers if they don't want to be associated with certain stories or headlines or anything? Yeah, so like in, uh, in, in the video world, a, a lot of times um, an advertiser will come in and so for example, the the last video we watched was Newsroom, um, ONN Newsroom, and they'll say, we'd like to pay you X amount of money to uh, put up six, six to eight Newsroom videos, and the deal is, before each one, we, we want our bumper beforehand. It's like, brought to you by Tide Laundry Detergent or whatever. <laughs> um, and when that happens, 
that's fine. And but part of the deal is they know what they're signing up for, um, and so we'll come up with their headlines and we'll give them a heads up like these are the headlines we're running. And if there's one that scares them, they'll be like, "Could we take our bumper off this video just this one time for that one?" And so it's less of um, getting permission from them to run a headline. It's more of we're going to run this headline that's kind of maybe tricky or might be tough for you to swallow, and uh, up to you if you want to put your bumper on it. You know. Is it a bit of an achievement then if all the advertisers don't want to be around the story? Is that good? Yeah, yeah it's, no, it's a nice little feather in the cap. Yeah. <laughs> Are there any particular ones you can think of where this just been like, this is not, people aren't going to want to be advertising on this page. Yes. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> would, you, would you like me to? <laughs> yeah. Um, Subway honors September 11th was a big one. Uh, <laughs> we thought not only will advertisers not want to be aligned with this, but we'll probably never work with Subways ever again. So, yeah, that's the risk you take. <laughs> yeah, you are pretty harsh on Subway. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we um, we actually moved the ads off of uh, one article because we were afraid that um, the response from them would be, you know, um, pretty. Dramatic. So <laughs> we spared them uh, kind of that, that exchange by just putting one article on a blank page, um, which we figured would be controversial or at least would, would rile people up. But it was one that in the room we really stood by, which is why we were okay with running something that was so um, loud and, and potentially, uh, you know, dangerous. What, what, was that, what was that headline? I'm interested in the kind of. I'm interested, I think, I think I know this headline. And I'm interested, I think it's a great example of explaining the kind of how a room justifies satire in a way. So yeah. what was the headline? All right, so I'll set up the context. <laughs> set up I the think, context think, first, yeah. I'll set up the context and then, <laughs> all right, so we have a team uh, in, our, um, in the NFL, our National Football League, uh, that is called the Washington Redskins. And it is uh, a picture of a, a Native American, very cartoonish picture of a Native American and uh, most Reasonable people in the U.S. think it's, it's, very, it's a very offensive, insulting yeah. name. And uh, there's been um, a campaign for a long time to change this name. The team's owner refuses to, says that the slur is not offensive and that, you know, it's just part of tradition and a lot of just kind of bullshit. Um, it's a traditional slur. It's a traditional slur. <laughs> yeah. It's like accepted in like American language. A lot of, like I said. <laughs> that's his argument. It's a traditional slur. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Seriously, that's such a great argument. It's, yeah, it's, in it's, spite it's, of I like think, Native think, American <laughs> populations telling him, no, in fact, yeah. we do not like it. I, yeah. I think he even, yeah, I think it's usually couched in like, oh, it's a term of endearment or a term of like respect. It's very weird. Um, and this owner happens to be Jewish. So for our headline, um, which we expected would be, uh, yeah, like I said, controversial. We kind of flipped the tables on this owner, and we wrote a headline that said, Kike owner refuses to change team's offensive name. Kike owner refuses to change team's <laughs> offensive name. Which, again, we got the joke, everybody in the room. This was one that actually had 100% support, because we were like, man, this is like, this feels icky when you read the words out loud, but we were like, we know exactly the point we're making, and we stand by that. So... Even though we knew that, we had a feeling that there would be some people out there who just kind of like saw that and would not bother or were not able to get the joke or message that we were sending. And so in that case, we pulled the advertisements from the page that we put it on. It's interesting that because, you know, and as you say, you've just, you totally explained the background. And I think that when you understand that, you know, it, it's very much justified. 
Do you find, though, that sometimes if people want to attack you, they take things out of context? So rather than explaining what it is, they'd say, the onion uses kike in a headline without any context, and that's the way in which they can kind of rob you of that justification. Yeah, and I think that like a decontextualized outrage is usually the one that um, catches the most with us because I think that most of our readers, um, well, our, our regular readers are very smart. They understand what we do. And casual readers, once they, they read the article, um, I th there's a confidence there that they will be able to see what's being, the, the work that is being done satirically and that it's not meant to target Jewish populations but instead to defend Native American populations. Exactly. I, I love complaints. We always get complaints if people call up and say, I didn't watch the show, but like, <laughs> it's a good start. Good start. I'm really listening to your complaint. Um, had, do you think, I mean, obviously the printed version of The Onion has now stopped. It's no longer being published. Um, has social media changed the way you do headlines, the way you publish stuff? Because, you know, nowadays if a news story happens, you know, 50,000 people around the world who think they are the onion will pick up Twitter and, you know, do whatever their joke on that. Has it meant you have to speed things up or do you sit back? And how do you respond to that kind of speeding up of the, I guess, the, the joke wheel? Yeah. I think with Twitter, um, it, does, it does make you have to think of, like, has this joke been done on Twitter? But it's also kind of nice because when something breaks, you just kind of sit back and honestly let everyone do their shitty jokes on Twitter first. And, like, look, everyone... Hey, I was doing some of those <laughs> shitty jokes. <laughs> um, and that lets you know, like, okay, everyone's made this joke, we just won't make that joke. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it does put pressure to put things out faster, for sure, but I think we're still known um, for... Being having the, the best quality as opposed to being the fastest. So until that changes, I think it's okay. You know, we're, you know, we're going to put out our comment fairly quickly, but it's okay that it takes time because people know that we're going to have a good comment. Yeah, people, people, we we, we say like, you know, people are going to want to know what the onion said about this, but they're not going to want to know like, you know, they don't care if it happens five seconds or or two hours later. You know, they just yeah. want it to be, good. you know, the quality that they've come to expect. What about, uh, you've started as well recently, uh, a new part of your, the empire is, of course, Clickhole, which is a parodying kind of new media itself. There's one of the uh, Clickhole stories. Uh, it, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. It's funny. Some of the Clickhole ones I feel like, you know, you said earlier, you don't want to trick people. Some of the Clickhole ones I feel like I feel like a lot of people on Facebook would real, think they're real. Maybe not that one, but, you know, two would think they're real. There's another one here. Fuck it, let's rank the religions. <laughs> it's interesting, that article. Actually, it's a very funny article, that. It, it, I mean, it ranks, interestingly enough, and this is probably controversial in America at the moment, it ranks Islam at number three and Christianity at number seven. <laughs> I can imagine that would go down well in the White House. In the, wouldn't go down well in Australia either. But um, it's interesting because the article itself kind of, it didn't, it, it was kind of a, it was more a parody of those kind of sites. Like it was like, hey, you're number one, you're great, rather than actually assessing the differences. Was that a, a decision in the room? Like if we start assessing 
the betterness of different religions by actually saying what's going on. We're going to get ourselves in a shitload of trouble here in America. Yes, that was a big. Uh, this was, I believe, sat on Clickhole's uh, backlog for a long time before being published because they had to talk very carefully about what those rankings would be and uh, <laughs> how how broad strokes to leave the rankings themselves. And so Hinduism obviously paid you more. <laughs> <laughs> number one sponsor. So why? So hang on. So that's fascinating. So if it sat on the back register because you were worried about, you know, what was the wrong or right approach. The one you went with in the end seems to be controversial, like putting Christianity way down in America. I mean, I don't know if you know this, but we think of America as being this kind of fundamentalist religious state in many ways. No. It is. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably less of um, like being worried about that, and it's more of like just making sure that you get it right, and kind of going over each line, and like you know making sure that everyone's on the same page and everyone feels comfortable defending it and why they, they put it and making sure that the jokes work. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. All right. Now, just so speaking, I just want to bring up that this is an old onion. <laughs> drugs win drug war. It's actually not the reason I want to look at this one. <clears throat> one of the things is, I mean, the onion's been around for so long now. You know, <laughs> it's good. Enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> it's the bottom one. I want to, like, the onion has been around for so long now. And news, by its very nature, repeats itself constantly. Like, do you guys find yourself? Do you have to kind of go back and look and go, did we do this? I mean, for instance, the bottom left there, a schoolyard shooting, mm -hmm. uh, is not. It's not like that doesn't happen often in America. And do you find yourselves having to go? Well, this is now. This is now the tenth time we've had to come up with a take on this kind of thing. We're really. It's getting more more difficult. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean. It sounds callous, but when it happens, you're like, you know, a, a tragedy like a shooting or a terrorist attack. You're like, oh man, like we've we've done this a lot. You know, we've we've kind of said almost everything we have to say about this issue, and we do wonder, like, oh god, do we do that comment already? Um, and and sometimes, you know, it it does feel like just like this infinite or uh, or an unending kind of slog um, lost in the actual tragedy, um, and that actually led to. Um, this, this article that, um, or this type of article that I really like. And Marnie, you explained it. Yeah, so we, we were convening so horrifically often to um, strategize coverage about shootings uh, in America that eventually we had the idea to continuously rerun an old article, the headline of which was, no way to prevent this says only nation on earth where this regularly happens. <laughs> and uh, we just ended up switching out the this, the dateline and the, the casualty count um, for each new tragedy, but eventually people started to see the pattern, and that's when it really like gained new relevance as satire, is that uh, we don't have to say something new about this because this is a story that's very old and shouldn't be. It, it shouldn't repeat itself, and yet it does. And it's a joke that has, like, or a, a message or construction that has, like, so many layers, not to sound, like, pretentious, because it's also us just substituting in place death toll, and that's basically what the news cycle is at this point when these things happen. It's just, here's the same copy, we'll just cut and paste in the name, cut and paste in the death toll, and we just have this ritualistic, um, you know, pattern that we do every time this happens. And so it was like also a comment on that, which is, yeah. in my opinion, kind of cool. Yeah, so like skewering not only that these events happen, but that the media coverage around them has gotten progressively more uh, rote. Yeah, and what led to that was... I'll never forget that day because we had just several brainstorms in a row where all the headlines 
that we, I don't even remember what particular shooting this was for, which says a lot, but um, all the headlines we liked, um, we would not run them because we'd say, oh, that's a good headline, but we did that for that other shooting. Or like, oh, that's a good headline, but I think, oh yeah, we did that for the shooting last year. And so it was this left and right of like headlines coming up and us going back to the drawing board and continuing to come up with really good headlines, but were ones we already used for other shootings. So that led to just repurposing that, that one headline. It is, it is fascinating that the number of those kind of shootings hasn't led to a change of the laws in America. Maybe if you can explain to the people that you've run out of jokes, it'll really be push it over the edge. <laughs> Finally, the NRA will lose that debate. I will write to my representative. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Do it immediately. Now, just quickly before we, uh, we've got to go pretty soon, I just want to quickly touch on uh, a regular thing, American Voices here. And I don't know if you can read this here, but one of the things I love about American Voices, this must be a fun part of the job, is coming up with the... the the jobs they have. We have uh, cigarette filterer, <laughs> landfill digger, and tarp salesman are the three there. And of course, these are, are these, were these stock photos? No, they are real people in uh, Madison, Wisconsin, where The Onion first started. Um, and they were originally older uh, photos um, for the print edition in the early 90s. And then I think in 2011, um, the, the art department went back to Madison, um, which I don't know, four-hour drive from Chicago, and tracked down these people again and took updated photos of them. So they have aged with the publication. So, and none of them did. This is what I was wondering, though, because I wonder if, for these people, is, does it suck being one of the American Voices people, <laughs> constantly being seen on The Onion? Like, did anybody go, no, 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 don't retake my photo, take me off there? Well, I don't know if anyone thought to ask them their opinion. <laughs> really? I just... Uh, I, Hi, just in a new shot. Thank yeah. you very much. Well, yeah. Marnie does. Is that, am I correct that you have just a continuing a backlog of fake jobs? Yeah, it's up to about three thousand of them now since yeah. I've been 3, doing it. So, my, yeah. my favorite one recently was a glue spreader. <laughs> <laughs> Anything that you can end in ER is always fun. That's great. Look, uh, unfortunately, we're going to have to end this. Uh, please thank, ladies and gentlemen, Marnie Shaw. Katie Eiser and Dan McGraw from The Onion. That was the team from The Onion talking about real fake news. And that session was hosted by Craig Rickassle. If you like this talk, make sure you subscribe to Ideas at the House wherever you get your podcasts. Our Antidote series continues next week with a rousing presentation by one of the co-founders of the Women's March on Washington, Tamika Mallory.